Welcome to the Amber Shows, the cupcake reading. This is A Piece of Cake by Cupcake Brown. It's the New York Times bestseller. Brown's confessional memoir is one you can't easily put down. Her life is nothing short of a miracle. So I'm going to recap, and I want to also start off by thanking my listeners who are listening to Cupcake Brown's memoir. I'm noticing that uh, more and more people uh, are are listening when I look at my analytics. And uh, I'm happy that you're enjoying the book. Some some of you are probably catching up on maybe and just now getting into it. So here we are. Right now, uh, as a recap, uh, Cup and her father have moved back with his ex-girlfriend, uh, Lori, her daughter, Kelly, who has a baby named Jason. They all used to live together at one time, and Kelly had a baby, which is Jason. And then Daddy and her Lori broke up, and then he got the apartment uh, in the at the complex, and that's where Cup began living with her father by herself, just the two of them. Besides, for there were three hoes who just paid rent. Daddy was not their pimp, and Daddy sold drugs, sold pills, and Cup sold whatever. And she got her inheritance money, uh, and she's bought a car. She spent most of the inheritance money. So this is what's happening now. She's just turned uh, 18, and she's having a big, huge party. She sent out, she put flyers out on people's cars and laundromats, beauty shops, because uh, she didn't think everybody would come. And uh, her best friend uh, Greg offered to let her have the party at his place. So here we go. I partied hard for the first two and a half hours, then I passed out. I tried to hang, but I couldn't. By 11.30, an hour and a half after the party really got started, I had three rum and cokes, three gins and tonics, four vodkas, orange juices, three whiskeys, shots, two brandies, and I think two cognacs. I was in a blackout after the second whiskey shot. All I knew was that one minute I was dancing on the coffee table with myself, with Greg, Brent, and some of the others trying to coax me down, and the next I was lying on Greg's bathroom floor, vomiting up what I was sure was my intestines. Greg came in, picked me up, uh, unaware of the vomit that streamed down the front of my once pretty purple dress as a result of missing the toilet a few times, and laid me down on his bed. He was heading for the door when I rose my head and slurred out to him to stop twirling the goddamn room. He glanced back at me, gave a little chuckle, and ducked back into the party crowd. I lay there assessing my situation. I felt like shit. I smelled like shit. And I was sure I looked like shit. So I gladly welcomed complete, utter, drunken unconsciousness. I was awakened by a great commotion. I was lying on the bed on my back, drool sliding down my cheek, when Greg burst into the room, slamming the door into the wall behind it. He thrust open the door with such force that when it hit the wall, the doorknob created a gapping hole. I raised my head as much as I could to see what was going on. Greg's left arm hung limp at his side and his shirt was soaked with some type of liquid. I figured it had probably been caused by a spilled drink. I had no idea it was blood. What's slapping? I slurred. Motherfuckers want to start some shit, he growled to no one in particular as he reached into his closet and grabbed a shotgun. Then it's it's going to be some shit. His eyes were bloodshot red and his face showed pure rage. He stormed out of the room. Well, whatever it was, I, I thought he'd obviously handling it. I suddenly became conscious of the fact that my head was too heavy to continue holding up. I plopped back down on the bed and passed out again. 
The next afternoon when I came to, I learned what happened. By midnight, about 200 more people had shown up wanting to get into the party and to get free drinks. However, there were at least 125 people already inside the house. Greg refused to let anyone else in. Some of the niggas got upset and tried to force their way in. A shoving match started, shoving escalating to punching. Several fights started. Suddenly, someone pulled out a gun and started shooting. Greg, who was standing in the doorway turning people away, was shot in the arm. But he was too drunk and pissed to think rationally. In his drunken fury, it never occurred to him to shut the party down and call for help. Instead, the alcohol told him to shoot back and get them motherfuckers. And that's when I seen him dash into the closet to grab his gun. Later, he was taken to the hospital and patched up. The bullet went clean through his arm. He was the only one shot that night. However, someone else was stabbed and still others were beaten up pretty bad. But it was clear who shot whom, who stabbed whom, and who'd been fighting whom. Of course, when the cops tried to interview people, no one knew anything and no one had seen anything. I didn't give a fuck about the others who'd been hurt. Those niggas ruined my party. I did feel kind of bad for Greg, though. I mean, it was my fault that so many people had shown up. But hell, I figured if I'd passed out 300 flyers, maybe 75 people would show up. It never occurred to me that some of those 300 people would tell a friend. Still, it was a great party. Only thing I hated was that I'd missed most of it and all the excitement. Greg didn't harbor any ill feelings toward me. I gave him a dime bag for his troubles, and we were cool. We continued to party together for months to come, but he never again let me use his house. I didn't care. Finding places to party was never a problem. One day, Junior called to say Grandma had died. I was hungover, so it took me a moment to clear my head and realize what he'd said. Uncle Junior, Grandma's dead? I asked disbelievingly. He answered that she was. I cried most of the day, partly because Granny was gone, but mostly because of the intense guilt I felt. I hardly ever went to see her, using the excuse that I couldn't take seeing her with Alzheimer's. Now that she was gone, I wished I could see her like that, or any other way, but I couldn't. Now I'd never see her again. To help ease the guilt, I got loaded until I passed out. After Grandma's death, I drank more and more, and my promiscuity increased dramatically. The realization that the only two women I'd ever really loved, my mom and her mom, were gone forever, seemed to widen the already huge void I had inside me. However, Daddy didn't understand my need to sleep around. In fact, he firmly instructed both me and Kelly not to have men in our rooms. More more important, they were not allowed to stay overnight. But where else was I supposed to take them? One Saturday morning, Daddy was heading off for the golf course. His car wouldn't start, so he came to my room and asked me if if he could use mine. He knocked on the door a couple of times, but there was no answer. I never heard the knock on the door. I was busy. Daddy knew I was home because my car was in the driveway, so he opened the door and peeked in. He said that all he could see was the covers moving up and down. Every time they moved up, he'd see my toes sticking up. He gasped and shut the door. I never knew he was there. Daddy decided that he should also check on Kelly, so he went and peeked into her room. Again, all he saw were covers moving up and down. He closed the door and caught a cab to the golf course. Later that afternoon, when he returned, he called us into the dining room. It was then that he informed us that he caught us both in the act. We were shocked as we looked at each other. I started to lie. I wasn't fucked 
cup. Don't lie to me. He slammed his fist down on the table. He was really pissed. He said it was disrespectful to him and Loria's parents for me and Kelly to have sex with men in the house. Let me get this straight, I thought. We can sell dope and you can have hoes, but all of a sudden, you don't want me fucking. Daddy continued. If them niggas can't afford a hotel, you're not worth it. But in any event, there will be no more men in the bedrooms. Is that understood? Yeah, we replied with our heads hanging down. I wasn't so upset by knowing Daddy caught me in the act of sex. I was more upset by the fact that I'd have to find another place to do it. I wondered if he really meant what he said. I decided he didn't mean it. He was just trying to be a father in front of Lori. The next day, tired from playing golf, Daddy was sitting at the kitchen table reading a newspaper. A young black man wearing nothing but boxer shorts sauntered into the kitchen, opened the refrigerator, grabbed two beers, and casually strolled away. The young man saw Daddy but didn't bother to speak. Wondering who the young man was and where he was going, Daddy quietly got up and followed him. He watched him walk into my room and close the door. Did my daddy see you? I asked the young man as he entered the room with the beers. His name was Billy, and he lived down the street from us. When I'd sent him to get the beers, I told him to be careful and to be quiet and to stay out of my daddy's way. The last thing I needed was to hear daddy's mouth. Nah, Billy lied. Later that day, daddy called me and Kelly into his room. I thought I told you girls I didn't want any more niggas in this house. But, I started, but my ass, daddy screamed, cut me off before I could finish the lie. Now shut up and listen, and listen good. I don't want anyone, man, woman, boy, or girl, to come through that front door without my permission. Now I will never kick you two out into the street. But what I will do is put my foot to your fat asses. It will take a dentist to get my toenails out of your throat. Now get the hell out of here. I'm sick of looking at you both. Kelly and I turned and walked out quietly but quickly. Shit, I was scared. The last time I seen Daddy, that piss was the day he kicked the wall when the doctor told him my, my, my mama was dead. Any doubts I had as to whether Daddy was serious about his no boys in the room rule was now gone. We would definitely have to get another plan. Kelly and I were sitting in the park smoking weed and drinking Long Island iced teas trying to decide on what to do. Let's move, I said. Move, she asked. How we gonna move? We can't afford to move. Well, you get your welfare check, and I still got money from my trust fund. On top of that, I can hustle. Together, we should be able to find something we can afford. Besides, I think of the fund we'll have in our new place. I've been there before, and trust me, ain't nothing like <clears throat> the freedom of having your own place. Nothing like it. She had to think about it only for a moment before she agreed to my plan. We would immediately start looking for a place. We went home and to, to tell Daddy and Lori we were moving out. They were lying in the bedroom watching TV. We knocked on the door, and after hearing Lori say, Come on, come on in, we walked in and announced that we were giving them two weeks' notice. For a moment, neither of them spoke. Then Daddy got a weird grin on his face. He looked at us, still giving a sarcastic smile, and said, Well... Neither one of you pay rent, so there's no need to give notice. Even we had to chuckle at that one. Daddy continued. Now, I would never put you out, but since y'all want to be grown, this is probably best. Get your own place. Then you can live as you wish. But remember, y'all are leaving on your own. We're not putting you out. We now had Daddy and Lori's blessings. Somehow that made our decision to leave feel right. At first, we had a hard time finding an apartment. No one wanted to rent to two teenagers. 
one who listed welfare and the other listed hustling for income. We knew that any landlord willing to rent to the world to rent to us would have to be someone who wasn't too picky about his or her tenants. I found that landlord back at my old complex. Actually, I found him in the back of the complex, in the two rows of raggedy, dilapidated two-bedroom cottages that stood behind the complex. Kelly and I rented one of the cottages. We could move in the following week. What we gonna do for furniture, Kelly asked. We were back at Daddy's and Lori sitting in my room smoking a joint, drinking Brass Monkey and celebrating our new apartment. I hadn't thought of that, shit. The apartment I had when I got emancipated came furnished. After that, I moved into the complex with Daddy who already had furniture. From there, we'd brought our furniture to our current house in Skyline. So I'd never had to worry about furniture. That's a good question, I replied. I thought about it for a moment, but drew a blank. Something would come up, I said, and took a swig of monkey. The next day, while root tooting lines, it did come to me. I approached Daddy about loaning us money to buy furniture. Kelly stood behind me. She said she wanted to stand behind and back of me so that if Daddy swung on us, I'd get his fist first and she'd get a chance to run. Girl, you know y'all ain't got no damn money, he replied. Tell you what. You can take anything you want and need from this house to help you set up your apartment. I stood there dazed. Anything? I asked, not sure I'd heard him correctly. Anything. Even the TV? Anything, pumpkin. You girls can have anything. Now, that she was sure daddy wouldn't do any swinging, Kelly stepped out from behind me. Even the stereo, she timidly asked, also thinking she'd heard wrong. What the hell's wrong with y'all? Daddy snapped, obviously irritated. Don't you know what anything means? It means anything, anything. Just take it, take it. We were shocked and touched. Neither of us could say anything for a moment. Finally, I spoke. We didn't think you'd do that. Daddy stared at us for a moment before speaking. I'm still Daddy, and that will never change. Just because you two disappointed me doesn't mean I don't love you. We ran into his arms, crying and grateful that someone did love our worthless asses. Then we did as he said. We took everything. Pictures off the wall, pots and pans, trash cans, trash bags, the broom, the vacuum cleaner, all the living room furniture, both of our bedroom sets, the TV, the stereo, the telephones, the telephone cords, the cleaning supplies, the lamp supplies, the ashtrays, food, everything and anything that wasn't nailed down or attached to the house was taken. Daddy just sat there and watched us empty his house. Periodically, he chuckled, but he never said a word. Lori was always in agreement to whatever Daddy said, so she kept silent. We'd love to have in our own place, though it was much harder than we'd imagined. Kelly paid her share of the rent from her welfare check. I paid mine the best way I could. I periodically turned tricks with my male and female partiers, sell dope, or as a last resort, go into my trust fund, which was dwindling quickly. We had planned to leave Jason and Daddy and Lori and visit him on the leave Jason with Daddy and Lori and visit him on the weekends. But Daddy was still pissed at Kelly's lying about going to school and tricking them into watching Jason. So we were forced to take him with us. Neither of us knew much about parenting or priorities. Our main concern was booze, drugs, gas from a gas guzzling car, clothes we had to look good, and men. As a result. 
We didn't have much money left for food. Kelly did receive food stamps from welfare. Luckily, there were one of the those were one of the constant sources of income. We would sell $100 worth of food stamps for $70 cash. This arrangement offered a two-way bargain. As sellers, we got the cash, which we used for drugs and booze, and the buyer got $30 worth of food for free. Since someone was looking to buy food stamps, we rarely used them or buy food. Luckily, a grocery store had specials on top romaine, a type of noodle soup. You could get 10 packages for a dollar. We'd buy 50 packages. Then we'd buy a big box of generic cereal and a huge box of powdered milk. You mixed it with water, and there it was, milk. Yes, it was nasty, chalky milk, but milk just the same. We figured that as long as Jason was being fed and not being beaten or raped, he was all right. So we actually considered ourselves to be good parents. We never allowed our nasty living conditions to diminish our positive parental self-image. Kelly, like me, hated to clean, though I was never able to figure out why. It wasn't like Lori ever made her do it. Anyway, because we both hated to clean, our house stayed filthy. Piles of dirty clothes lay everywhere. Bowls with dried ramen noodles left in them, or bowls of dried up cereal with paste residue from the powdered milk still clinging to them were piled high in the sink. Neither did we allow Neither did we allow the fact that we lived with rats. Our first-rate self-image didn't bother us. Actually, we found the rats episodes comical. For instance, one day Jason was running around and we were still partying. And we had friends over and a rat was scurrying by. In fact, no one saw the rat till Jason stepped on it. We were sitting around drinking Heineken, rooting, tooting lines, and smoking blunts when we heard the squeals. Jason squeal and the rats. The room grew suddenly quiet as we wondered what the hell had just happened. Mommy, Auntie Cup, look! Jason screamed as his bony fingers pointed at the broken slump, squirming at the at the broken slump. I'm sorry, everyone. We all stood and gathered around the rat and still hadn't surrendered to death, who had not surrendered to death. We just stood there for a few moments, no one saying a thing. Finally, I broke the silence with a whisper. What should we do? I didn't know why I was whispering. Poor thing. We have to have a funeral, Victor said softly to no one in particular. Victor had been a, one of our faithful partiers. He'd been a regular at the toga parties and, he'd loyal, and his loyalty followed us when we moved out on our own. Now he looked so sad like he was about to cry. A huge black man, Victor stood about 6'3 and weighed about 270 pounds. So to see him near tears and speaking softly about a funeral for a dead rat was just too funny. I looked at Victor and began to laugh. My laughter must have been contagious because Victor started laughing too. Soon Kelly and the others joined in. Even Jason joined in, though he really had no idea what was so funny. I don't know if it was the beer we, we drunk or the coke we tooted or the weed we'd smoked, but once we started laughing, we couldn't stop. Even after the rat died and began to ooze yellowish fluid from his eyes and mouth, we cracked up. In fact, for about 25 minutes, we lay out on the floor in a circle around the dead rat, laughing our asses off. By the time I was able to get myself together, my eyes were watering so much I could barely see and my side was killing me. We never thought twice about the diseases rat carry or about the fact that Jason could have been bitten. Actually, whenever someone wanted to get us laughing, 
they'd bring up the Jason stepped on that rat. Being in our own house allowed our parting to escalate. Since most of the other tenants were illegal aliens from Mexico, we never really had to worry about anybody calling the police on us. We immediately changed the venue of the toga parties from the beach to our living room. It was during this time that my heroin use skyrocketed. I was driving to the store to get more beer when I happened to notice this guy walking down the street. Normally, I wouldn't have paid him any mind. What caught my attention was the three creases ironed into the back of his shirt, the sign for eight tray gangsters. But as far as I knew, I was the only gangster in San Diego. My heart began to race as anxiety and uncertainty kicked in. What if he was really one of the homies? Would they remember me? Would I remember them? Would they come after me? I asked myself. Why would they? I answered myself. You ain't snitched. I hadn't. I kept my vow of silence. I slowed down so I could get a better look at the man. As I crept by, he looked up, smiled as he threw up the fingers and hollered, What's up, cuz? It was Bootsy, one of the OGs from the set. We'd done a lot of crimes and smoked a few lines and, and smoked a few live ones together. He was family. I pulled over, almost hitting him, jumped out the car and ran to hug him. I jumped into his arms with such force we both almost fell over as we struggled to catch his balance. Damn, cuz, he slurred, obviously loaded. You sure really happy to see a nigga? I was, as the realization that I'd found really was one of my homies. All of the fear and anxiety I'd felt just moments before were immediately forgotten. Just that fast, the intense feeling of camaraderie, solidarity, and friendship returned. I felt like I had found a long-lost relative. Come on, Cuzzo, I said. I hadn't used Cuz since leaving the set, and I didn't realize how fast and automatic the lingo returned. Ride with me to the store to cop some brew. On our way to the store, he caught me up on what had happened on the set. He told me which of the homies had gotten killed or jailed since my departure. He said the game had changed, that the little homies coming up didn't have respect for the game like we'd had. He said the younger homies weren't true to the blue or the set. Their main attention was now focused on the green, money, and territory, drug turf. It seemed more and more of the homies were getting into slanging. He said it wasn't just the gangster either. Every set was turning to the game. Remember then remember when niggas used to scrap? He angrily asked me. I did remember. I'd been in several scraps myself. I began to finally reflect reflect back on the night I'd been jumped into the set. Well, no more, he stated irritably, bringing me back to the present. Now niggas just shooting. I marveled at his extreme anger about the apparent changes the gang environment was going through. I figured this would be a good time to change the subject. What about you, Cuzzo? I asked. What the hell are you doing in San Diego? He said he had to leave L.A. in a hurry. It seemed that he wanted he was wanted for questioning for a who ride on some in hoods. Wasn't he just complaining about niggas shooting? I wondered who'd had gotten who he'd gotten and if he'd taken anyone out. But I decided not to ask. The less I knew, the better. I already had enough to keep quiet about. He said that since he had family in Diego, he thought he would be a good time. It would be a good time to take a little vacation. He was staying with an aunt who lived about a mile from me. I didn't care why he was there. I was just glad to see him. I took him home with me, and of course we started going together. I really enjoyed having him around for the 
first time since leaving the set, I was able to reminisce about the good old days. Bootsy loved snorting heroin. I did too. So we got along fabulously since we spent so much time together. We began snorting more and more. Bootsy hit me to stealing cars. I'd been a lookout while he'd hop in the car, break off the ignition, and hotwire it. Sometimes I'd do the stealing, but I was too slow with that hot wiring and most times too loaded to remember which wire to twist together to start the engine. So I preferred stealing those cars in which the owners were stupid enough to leave the keys. Bootsy used to tease me and say I wasn't a really good thief. If I had the keys, I didn't care. I was always looking for an easier way to do things. Once we took the cars, he and his friends stripped them and sold the parts. Sometimes we'd just take the car to Mexico and sell the whole damn car. We'd take the money and buy heroin. That's all Bootsy snorted. And since I always followed my man, it soon became all I snorted. Bootsy and I loved, stole, and snorted our way around Diego. But the relationship was short-lived. A couple of months later, Bootsy got busted for a GTA. I was supposed to go with him to steal it, but I'd gotten a little delayed. I just snorted a big fat line of heroin and my nose was stinging, my eyes were watering, and my ears were, ra- were ringing. Wait a minute, I yelled after him. I'll be ready to go in a minute. But his impatience wouldn't allow him to wait for me. He was arrested a few hours later. When he was arrested, he gave a fake name, but they ran his prints and discovered his true identity as well as an arrest warrant for attempted murder. He was immediately returned to L.A. I never saw him or heard from Bootsy again. I was sorry to see him go, but I drowned my sorrows in heroin, which, thanks to him, had become my favorite drug. I convinced myself that as long as I didn't slam, I wasn't a dope fiend. Slam meaning put it in my arms with a needle. I failed to realize that, even though I was snorting it, I was using much more of it and more frequently than I did, than did my friends who did slam it. In fact, they started telling me I might have a drug problem. My friends had begun to nag me about my drinking. I had to kindly remind them that I had to kindly remind them that I was the one with the college certificate. But to shut them up, I decided to change my habits again. I'd only drink during the week. I convinced myself that I, that by only drinking hard liquor on the weekends, I could not have a drinking problem. The beer I decided to do the most drinking of was Heineken because Victor said that Heineken was the good beer, the regular favorite of a high-class folks. Soon, Heineken became the only beer I'd drink. In fact, I'd set a whole new goal in life. I convinced Kelly, Victor, and our party friends to help me get into the Guinness Book of World Records for having the most empty Heineken bottles. At first, they laughed and dismissed the idea it was stupid. But after each one had drunk five beers and smoked a couple of joints, they changed their response to willing to listen. After they'd each had eight beers and several more joints, they thought it was an excellent idea. Before each of them passed out drunk that night, they were seriously committed to helping me set a world record of having the most Heineken empty bottles. We started saving the, the, the bottle of every Heineken we drank. We stacked and stored the empty bottles in six-pack containers. We decided to build a collection along the longest wall in the kitchen. Within four months, there was nothing in the kitchen but empty six-packs of Heineken that stood as high as the refrigerator. As word of the incredible Heineken collection quickly spread throughout the hood, people began asking to see it. Me, being the hustler I was, started charging admission, 70 cents for adults and 50 cents for kids, to see 
what was soon being called the greatest Heineken collection in the world. The money I made from admission fee wasn't much, but hey, every little bit counted. Soon, though, the Heineken bottles began to boot, bore me, and the constant trail of people were also causing tension between Kelly and me. Even though the collection was my idea, she somehow thought it was her collection, too, and wanted half of the admission money. But it wasn't just the bottles that caused friction between me and Kelly. We also fought over money. Because of our partying, either of us rarely had our, our respective share of the rent. And though it had never been a problem before, dope also became a regular topic for argument. She began accusing me of constantly hogging the straw, joint, bottle, or whatever substance we were consuming. Her nagging pissed me off because, hell, I was hogging. She was a lightweight. Daddy and, I, Daddy and Lori decided to move to Chula Vista, the city in the southern rip tip of the San Diego area where I had lived when I'd gotten emancipated. Kelly decided it would be a good decision to go with them, so she moved out. Her departure was quick and uneventful. She came into the house, announced that she was moving back in with Daddy and Lori, hurriedly shoved her and Jason's clothes in a trash bag, and left. I could care less whether she'd left or not. What I did care about was the bitch struck me with the unpaid rent and the landlord was constantly sweating me about when I was going to get it. I had to do something and fast. I decided to deal with my problems like I had always did, ignore them. The night Kelly left, I went down to Oasis Nightclub and had a couple of drinks. The place was packed. Good. I could really get my party on when the place was full. As I walked to the bouncer, Big Red squabbled at me. He knew me well because he'd had to save my ass a couple of times from some nigga I'd pissed off. As I walked to him, he angrily warned, Behave yourself, girl. I ain't in the mood for your shit tonight. Fuck you, I retorted. I paid my money like everybody else. If he had understood me, he probably would have let me in. But I'd already had several drinks, so it was hard for him to understand me. I said, sounded like I said, Fuck, Sue. I paved my sunny like else. He irritably just waved me on by. I went to the bar and ordered a drink. Long Island iced tea with no coke and no ice. All booze, baby. I got my drink. I, st- I stood next to the dance floor so I could check out the crowd and let them check me out. I knew I looked good in my black miniskirt, gold sequin top, matching shiny gold legging. Before you think I'm crazy, remember that leg leg warmers were in style in the 80s. As I stood against the wall, scanning the room to see who piqued my interest, I saw a tall, light-skinned black man standing along the wall directly across from me. He seemed bored as he watched the people on the dance floor. He looked as though he didn't want to be bothered. He looked like a challenge. I loved the challenge. I sauntered up to him, aware that he was checking me out as I approached. As I got closer, I realized he was more handsome than I'd originally thought. He had a square face and large, sexy lips. When he smiled, the bright white teeth lit up the room. He stood about six feet tall and was very thin. I especially liked the hair on his face. He wore a thin mustache that curved down around his mouth and met small, nicely groomed beard under his chin. I didn't have to think about what to say to him. I used the same line I used with every man. Don't I know you from somewhere? I knew damn well I didn't know him. Surprisingly, despite my slurring, he understood me. I don't know, do you? He quietly replied, a smartass. I like that. Probably not, but I'd like to, I said in the sexiest voice I could muster while giving him a sly grin. He blushed, 
obviously flattered by my directness. We stood there for a moment, not saying anything. Finally, I spoke up. You want to dance, I asked. Sure, he replied. As we walked to the dance floor, I could tell he was checking out my ass. Though I was thin, I made sure to put an extra little switch to my walk. His name was Tommy. We danced, drank, and talked until the club closed. The first thing I noticed about him was how proper he spoke. He almost sounded as though he were white. I liked hearing him talk, though. So soon after the club closed, we sat in my car in the club's parking lot talking. Actually, he did most of the talking. I just listened to the cool way he sounded. All of a sudden, in mid-sittance, he told me he didn't want to go home. No problem. Tommy didn't have a car of his own, so I brought him home with me and mine. I wasn't embarrassed by the fact I lived in a two-room shack. I wasn't embarrassed by the fact that the house was absolutely filthy and smelled like old trash, dirty dishes, grimy dishes, dirty clothes. I didn't care about any of that since I figured he'd only been there, he'll only be there for one night, so it wasn't like I had to impress him or anything. Little did I know, he'd be a one-night stand that would last over five years okay you guys Whew. that cup is something else I mean with the wit and the um, smartness and the knowledge that she has I'll be glad to know that she will eventually get herself together will Tommy help her get herself together I hope so Thank you for coming to the Amber Shows. I will be reading more of A Piece of Cake sometime this week. But I'll let you know. I'll put it on Twitter. I'll send you texts and emails. I'll put it on Instagram. And you can continue listening to A Piece of Cake. Brown's Confessional Memoir. One you can't easily stop listening to. Have a great day, everybody.